last time we were together, Saul passed away, and it's now time for David to begin to rise to the throne. From here on out in our series for the rest of the year, we will be examining the life of David. But it's not going to go like you thought it would go. I can guarantee you that if I asked most of you, tell me the story of David's life, it would go something like this. He was kind of a young kid, I don't know really how old he was, but he killed Goliath and then he became the king of Israel. All right, let me let you know it's a bit more complicated than that. Up to this point in the story, David is still not on the throne of Israel. By the end of today, he will still not be on the throne of all Israel. He will be on the throne of one tribe, the southern portion. He is 30 at the beginning of our story, and it will be seven and a half more years by the end of our story, and he's still not there. What we do not realize is this story is complicated. We need one more Bible over here if we can grab that. It is complicated, and it seems to be taking way too long. I don't think any of us realize that it would be decades for this guy just to get near the throne. He was anointed years and years and years ago. We've been studying this for weeks and for months, and it's still not happening. For a lot of us, it feels like life. Everything takes too long, right? I understand that feeling. So I have a couple of thoughts for you. Let's begin with an idea like this. The Bible said in the Old Testament that there was going to come a Messiah. Who would have thought that this Messiah was going to come and die? That's a weird way to set people free. Then we have Jesus show up on the scene saying he's the Messiah. And then he dies in front of everybody, comes back to life and disappears into heaven. While he's on the earth, he says things like, you need to lose your life so you can find it. What in the world does that mean? It seems like the whole process, this idea that God would become man and come down and love on us and die for us on a cross of humiliation to cleanse our sins. How, why in the world is that the process? So let's all admit one thing up front. God's plans are weird. Can we all agree on that? All right, the whole process is weird. Everything about it is weird. As a matter of fact, you're reading a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible and you go, it's weird. All right, I get it. I'm agreeing with you. Of course it's weird. Why does it have to be so bizarre and so hard? Well, that's a whole nother message. But I can tell you that if you walked into this place and you don't understand your life and it feels just as weird, you know what David's going through. Because he was told that he would be king in his mind forever ago and nothing has changed he has spent all his life on the run having no friends and all of it is being ruined by a guy named saul who's now gone and david still can't move forward it seems like everything is moving at the slowest pace possible anybody feel like that in your life <laughs> right every day yeah it's kind of like really can we please move forward I felt like God said, well, you're going to be used for my kingdom. And I haven't been used for his kingdom for like 30 years and I'm still waiting, right? It's this whole idea that everything seems to take what? Two steps backward, one step forward. And you're just frustrated, pulling out your hair. In our culture, we are quite certain that if God does not answer our prayer by noon, clearly he has abandoned us. 
right? Because everything better happen or else it ain't going to happen at all. It's not like if you call Walmart and ask if they have an item, it's not like they're going to call you 13 years later and go, we have that for you. If they don't call within a week, you pretty much assume that they're ignoring you. Well, we think the same thing about God. But here's something that's extraordinary. I just got back from Alaska. How many people have been to Alaska? Anybody been to Alaska? Oh, that's a good amount of you. All right. So I just got back from Alaska, and we went up and we saw a thing called the Mendenhall Glacier. Anybody ever heard of this thing? It's kind of a famous bit of ice, all right? Now, let me describe what it looks like. So we're looking out into the distance, and there's two mountains coming together in forming a V. One's coming down from the right, one's coming down from the left. In the middle is another mountain of just ice. It's pouring through. If you looked at it and took a snapshot, you would think that it's pouring through the mountain coming at you. It breaks off into the water, and there's huge, massive, boat-sized chunks of ice floating away from it. It's incredibly beautiful. We had an opportunity to go during a season when it was lightly peppered with a morning dew, so it was shiny, and yet it had a cloud cover that allowed the deep colors to come out of it. So it was all blue-green, kind of this turquoise-looking thing. All the water that we were cruising through in the Inland Passage actually was all green. I did not know that Alaska had green water. It's all the glacier silt that is coming through and making it look beautiful. Now, when you look at a, at a glacier and you have someone explain it to you, they will say things like, the pressure from the glacier moving forward will separate and crush and move mountains. The power of a glacier is extraordinary. And it will rise up ground and lower ground and changes the very level of all the inlets. When I looked at it, guess what it was doing? Nothing. I stared at it for approximately 10 minutes and nothing happened. Very unimpressive. Can we all agree that God seems to work at glacial speed? Yes. Here's the thing. You know that it's moving because you can see the effects of it moving, but if you stare at it, it's not going anywhere. It feels like our lives. It feels like David getting to the throne. We are all convinced, and I would tell you that 100% of you that have ever read this story before, if I ask you the question, is David going to get on the throne of Israel, you're going to say what? Yes. Why? Why are you so convinced that it's going to happen? It's taking too long. You go, well, God told me. And honestly, I read the end of the story, Lance. I went ahead. Spoiler alert, right? He, he makes it. Hold on. Why are you so convinced on that? Because you've read Revelation, but you keep questioning God about life. Clearly, what you read doesn't matter, right? You know the end of the story. doesn't seem to change how we live. But you seem so convinced that David's going to get there. David is convinced that David's going to get there. But I can tell you at this moment in the story, he has absolutely no idea how in the world that's going to work. I bet you anything he's frustrated. I bet you anything he hates his life. I bet you anything he doesn't want it to go like this. So if you feel like that, then you understand his heart. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Whether we like it or not, life 
And God's plans are messy. Life and God's plans are messy. We spend all of our time saying this phrase. God, can't we just finish it and get on with it and get to the next thing, please? I'm tired of doing this one. A couple questions come to my mind. Number one, what do you want to finish? What do you want to get to? Right? I mean, you're, we're so bent on outcomes. What do you want to hurry up and do? Well, I want to hurry up and get rid of the fact that I'm wrestling through a challenge with cancer, right? Maybe that's your answer. I want, God, can we just finish this one, the constant not knowing what's going to happen with my body? Why do you want to finish that one? What do you got next? You got something else that's coming up? Oh, I see. We're going to have to work on your marriage. Okay, we can hurry up. We can hurry up right past cancer and then to go work on your marriage. You want to go work on something else? Is that what you want? Because this life is not heaven. I need you to understand that. We're not going to have everything in a nice, neat little package here. That's not going to happen. So what are you rushing for? Here's the other thing. We keep saying, God, you're taking too long. Who gets to determine what is too long? The person with all the information. They get to make the time frame. Because it's not taking too long if that's how long it's supposed to take. There are things that at glacier speed it can create that's more powerful than if you did it fast. But we're not used to that. We don't like that. But I will tell you this. Just because we live in a dysfunctional, gotta have it now, society does not mean God's going to speed up for you. You ever seen rocks under a waterfall? What do they look like? Incredibly smooth. I challenge you today to take a rock out of your garden and go hold it under the water. (laughs) Hold it there for a good five minutes. Okay. No change, right? Incremental. God can wait it out. If we are bent on outcomes, we're going to be greatly disappointed in this life because God's not. God is not interested in outcomes as much as he's interested in process. And in process, there's no timeline. If my whole goal in taking you out on a date, guys, roll with me on this. I know you don't want to date me. I get it. The women don't want to date me either. That's that's a sad thing. Anyway, if my whole idea to take you on a date is to spend time with you, then how is that taking too long? Isn't my point just to be with you? And if my point is to be with you, what are we rushing to? We're rushing to an event? I didn't want to do the event. I just want to be with you. So what are we hurrying towards? Here's the way I pictured it in my mind. It's as if we're sitting in a waiting room over an emergency to hear back from the doctors and Jesus is sitting next to us and every time he tries to talk to us, we go, shh, we're waiting for the doctors. Shh. He's like, actually, I created the emergency so we'd have time together in the waiting room. And we shut him down. If you do not learn how To love Jesus on the move, you won't love Jesus at all. Because we keep saying, I will be the Christian I want to be when, what are you waiting for? It's not going to fix. It's not going to be all perfect. 
You're never going to have enough time to just sit around and hang with Jesus with nothing else. You must learn to understand that Jesus wants to walk through life with you and not wait for you at the corner when you finally arrive. Let's take a look in our Bibles at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, page 254 in the Bibles handed to you. Let me remind you where we're at in the story. Because Saul did not live a life of worship, which is what we've been talking about this whole series, but he lived a life of self. By his death, we have reverted back to as if he never existed at all. The Philistines are now in control of all the Israelite territory. They're the big dogs. All the jockeying for position we're about to study in this story is really only about Israel trying to figure out who's going to lead them so they can lead a rebellion and revolution against the Philistines. They are not in control of anything. That's the shame of living a life for yourself. It doesn't advance anywhere. But a life of worship, a life that David lived will lead to a united monarchy, one of the only times in Israel's history ever that they were together under God. One nation under God. At that point, indivisible. But what we're about to see is a brutal, messed up, crazy, psycho story. I called the message today, Not So Good Fellas, because it reminds me of a gangster-related movie. Now, I'm not going to recommend the movie to you. I cannot do that from the pulpit. That's probably not a good idea. However, any type of mafia, crazy, I kill this guy, I mean, we can go back to Mark Twain of the two families that fought against each other. I don't know what you want to think of, but I need you to not think of, ooh, politically correct, everybody's happy, I'm entitled to this, how dare you do that, where's my government program? Okay, this whole America stuff that we got going on is not the world we're about to walk in. What we do in that world is, hey, I have a bigger sword than you, I'm going to kill you. That's how it works. So we need to get our heads into a whole different mindset where everybody assassinates everybody, everybody kills everybody, and it's a brutal time of life. And as we're walking through this, I want you to see how David maintains his integrity in the midst of all this chaos, because his eyes are set on God's story, not on his. So let's go ahead and pray for the word, and we'll begin this morning. Heavenly Father... We praise you and we thank you and we ask that this morning you would increase our faith to believe that you are still moving, that you have not abandoned us. We refuse to allow circumstances to dictate our theology. Therefore, we believe that you are still present, that you are on the throne, that you are alive and active and that you are not done with us. Increase our faith, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. It says after this, after what? After Saul is dead and there's this great power vacuum in Israel. After this, David inquired of the Lord. You see, he always asked God first, didn't ask him as a last resort. That's a life of worship. After this, David inquired of the Lord and he asked him, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? That's his tribe region. And the Lord said to him, go on up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. That's a city. Can we throw a map up there? What we're going to do is leave this map up for the duration of the message because every city that is mentioned in these passages is here on this map. Hebron, as you'll notice, is a little bit on our slide in the middle, but that's considered the south 
of Israel. That's where David is in charge of, and he's about to be named king of only the southern portion. This is the first step toward the inevitability of him being king. But make no mistake, Saul ran the whole thing, and in the power vacuum, someone's going to step in and run all the rest of it. David is going to set up camp for the next seven and a half years in Hebron, and he will rule from the south. Let's see how that goes. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his household. They lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Then what I'm going to do this morning is paraphrase a little, read a little, paraphrase a little, read a little. What the story says next is that David honors a city by the name of Jabesh Gilead. Do you see it on the map? Well, that's really odd for a couple reasons. Where is Jabesh Gilead? It's in the north. As a matter of fact, it's not just in the north. It's on the right side of what? The Jordan River. Now, Israel had both sides, if you see that little line there, called Gilead. But it was outside of the territory that the Philistines had control over. They only had the left side of the Jordan River. So David, who's a leader in the south only, starts telling the north, Hey, I heard what you guys did for Saul, and I really appreciate it. What did they do? They went through in the night, went and took Saul and his son's bodies off the wall of the Philistines, went home and gave them a proper burial. They risked their lives to honor the dead King Saul. David said, I love that you did that. And I want to tell you this. I'm on your side. I want to back you up and I want to tell you the fact that you honored Saul means a lot to me. And I'll protect you. Now, why would David say that to a northern city if he's in the south? Because I believe David has more faith than I do. And I think David is looking forward to a time when he will rule all of Israel. And he believes God at his word. The other intriguing thing is as he connects with them, it starts to unify the nation. Now, Saul's team is going to set up their camp at Mahanaim, right near it. So David is messing with their territory. All right, well, let's see how this whole thing goes. By the way, side note. He just honored them for honoring Saul, who has made David's life completely miserable. You're going to hear that over and over and over. David will honor his enemies all the time. And I'm going to tell you in a moment why. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, which is a stupid name. Can we all agree? Amen. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. All right? Now let's stop for a moment and find out where we're at in the story. If you look on the map, Gibeon looks again about in the middle. But really, it's on the border of the southern part of Judah and the northern part of Israel. 
Because here's what they're about to do. Since Saul is gone, and one team made Ishbosheth king, the south team made David king, they need to sort this out. Who's going to be the future guy? It's almost like a political event. How are we going to figure out who the next king is going to be? We have two power people. So they decide they're going to fight, up, fight about it, fight over it, right? What they're going to do is they're going to line up their 12 best guys and have them fight, and whoever wins, their team is going to take over. Why? Because they don't want needless bloodshed. This is a civil war situation. Anyone that dies in this war is your own flesh and blood. They're your brothers and sisters. They're the other tribes of Israel. They don't want everyone decimated because that ruins the point. The Philistines are the enemy, not each other. So they come up with this concept. Let's meet in the middle, select your 12 best, we'll select our 12 best, and we'll go hand-to-hand combat. Whoever wins, wins. Well, this is a lame plan. Let's move forward. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. They sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. All right. Anybody confused by the names yet? Are we all cool with that? Are we tracking with the names? But we need a little help on those. All right, let's do a little bit of help here. On the top of your page, I want you to do this. On the far left-hand corner, I want you to write down the phrase, David's kingdom. David's kingdom or David's house. Either one is fine. I want you to write David's kingdom and write a line under it. And underneath there, I want you to write the following words. The first one is Judah. Whenever you hear the phrase Judah, that's David's team. Underneath that, I want you to write Hebron. That's his hub of campaign. That's his city, his main city, his capital. Underneath there, I want you to write the name Joab, J-O-A-B. That is the commander of David's army. He's a tough guy. Underneath there, I want you to write the A brothers. A brothers. Why? Because Joab has two brothers, both their names start with A. You will not care about their names. They have lame names. So just write the A brothers. Anytime you hear about these guys, they're on David's team. All right? Cool. In the middle on the top of your page, I want you to write just one name. Abner. A-B-N-E-R. And then I want you to write arrows that point both directions. Why? Because Abner is going to switch teams in our story. He is going to start on one side and shift to the other side. Abner is Saul's commander. He's the Joab of the other side. All right? On the far right-hand side, write Saul's kingdom with a line under it. Underneath that, write down Israel. Anytime you hear Israel, that's Saul's team. Okay? And one last name. Write Ishbosheth. That is spelled I-S-H dash Bosheth. <laughs> no, I'm not going to spell it for you. Forget it. That wouldn't be funny if I did. Let's go back to our story. 
So now we have Joab and Abner, the two commanders of the opposing teams, about to hammer it out. And they're going to figure out whose kingdom is going to take over. So they select 12 of their men. But I need you to understand what type of men we are talking about. The only way you're going to do that is to look in the book of Chronicles. All right? Now, you don't have to look at it right now, but I want you to jot down in your notes that we are going to read 1 Chronicles 11.11. 11. 1 Chronicles 11, 11 and following. I need you to understand how strong these guys are. This is not the, hey, I kind of, I work over here at this store, you know, locally in town. This is not that. This is, I fight for a living, I kill a lot of people guy. Right? Let me explain. It says, this is the list of David's mighty men. Jashabim, chief of the officers, he raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. One to 300 ratio. That's a tough guy. Next to him was Eleazar, one of the three mighty men. He was with David when the Philistines gathered for battle. The troops fled from the Philistines, but they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Three of the 30 chiefs came down to David at the rock at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, carried it back to David. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab. Everybody remember the A brothers? This is the first one. Abishai. The Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. He was doubly honored above the three and became their commander. Benaniah, a valiant fighter, performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. He too was as famous as the three mighty men, and David put him in charge of his bodyguard. The mighty men were Asahel. Asahel is the other A brother. So this family, Joab, Asahel, right, and Abishai, are three brothers. They're all in David's mighty men. They're going to be talked about in this passage. I need you to understand how tough these guys are. And then I need you to understand after reading about those men, you have to understand out of all this nation, these are the biggest, baddest, toughest guys. Knowing that, I want you to read verse 41. And tell me the only name that you recognize in that verse. 1 Chronicles 11:41. Who do you see there? Uriah the Hittite. Who's Uriah the Hittite? He's the guy David's going to kill to get Bathsheba. I need you to let that sink in. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. When we come to that story, I need you to understand the power of that. These are brilliant warriors. Now, granted, if you look through the list through the lenses of somebody as messed up as me, here's what you also see. I found Elhanan, son of Dodo. I found Ira from Tekoa. 
I found Jonathan, son of Shaggy. I didn't even know Shaggy had kids. I found Heifer and Ira the Ithrite. That means two of David's mighty men are named Ira. So, in my mind, that's funny, okay? Because I don't understand why they all have to have really, really weird names. So, if your name's Ira, I apologize in advance. All right, let's go back to the story. They are now going to line up 12 of their best guys. And this is how it goes. And each, 2 Samuel 12, uh, 2 Samuel 2, excuse me. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, the place is called Helkath Hazarim, which means field of daggers, which is at Gibeon. What happened? Didn't solve anything. When you got two guys that can kill 300 men, guess who they're going to kill? Each other. So all 12 lined up and stabbed each other to death. Wow, that was very ineffective. So now what do we do? Well, now you've got to fight it out. That's not what they wanted to do. That's what they were trying to avoid doing. Somehow, some way, David's men got the upper hand, and the battle was fierce. Go on into the verse. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David, and the three sons of Zariah were there. Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now, Azahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. All right, so not only is he super tough, he's like, uh, what's Bolt's name, right? You know, these, these racers, these guys in the Olympics? Usain Bolt. Have you ever seen that guy run? This guy is absolutely brilliantly fast. He takes off in a chase after Abner. Abner is just as tough as everybody else, and they start a foot race. So he's racing after him to try to kill him. And this is one of the most comical parts in the whole story. I need you to read it on your own. We're going to go through chapters 2, 3, and 4. Go home and read these. Here's how it goes. They start running and having a dialogue. As Abner is running ahead, he goes, Is that you, Azahel, chasing me? Right? Because he can't see him. He's running. And he goes, Yes, it is I. And he's running after him. And he goes, Well, stop chasing me. Can't do that. And he's still running. So he waits a little longer and he goes, are you still chasing me? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, stop doing that. Go fight somebody else, right? They're having this talk while they're running. <laughs> and he said, go steal somebody else's stuff and don't chase me anymore or I'm going to have to kill you. And he goes, I'm sorry, I cannot give up the chase and keeps running after him. Finally, Abner gets so sick of it, he goes, fine, I'm stopping. Stops running, grabs his spear, jams it backwards through his stomach out the other side. And a mighty man is killed like that. Everyone that runs up stops. They know how powerful this man is. He was just slaughtered needlessly, but he wouldn't give up the chase. Problem is he has two brothers. Joab and Abishai. Guess who take up the chase? Those two guys go. Abner's still running, going, dang it, you know, because he can't slow down at all. He's just hauling, right? So he's still running. Finally, he goes, I can't outrun these guys. So he gets everybody to hide up on a little mountaintop fortress and walls it off. And Joab surrounds it. And finally, Abner yells down. He goes, Joab. Man, the whole point we started today was that so we would minimize the killing. Enough people have died. You're fighting against your own flesh and blood. I know you don't like me, and I don't like you. But the bottom line is, we got to call it. And Joab goes, good point. Calls off all his troops, and they go home. Just like that. Weird story. But now, Joab hates Abner with a passion, because he killed his brother, right? Personal vendetta. 
Watch what happens next. It says, the final score is that Saul's team lost 360 men that day from the tribe of Benjamin. That's a lot for a small tribe. David's team lost 20. David began to get stronger and stronger, and Saul's team began to get weaker and weaker. During that time in Hebron, over the next seven and a half years, David acquires seven more ladies in his life. Three wives, four concubines. Or, if you'd like to be polite, let's just call them seven wives. He has seven kids while he's there in that city. This is known as God blessing him and his stature growing. However, a lot of the marriages were political marriages to set up the future. His children, however, don't turn out awesome. I want to tell you this. David lives a better life of worship than almost anybody in Scripture. But just because you live a life of worship doesn't mean you're great at everything. I'm going to tell you this. I love everything about David except for one key area of his life. He is a dismal father. How do we know that? All of his kids turn nasty on him. Now, his first son, Amnon, ends up raping his half-sister. His third son, Absalom, will end up in our story taking over his father's kingdom and running him out of town. And it goes on and on. Even Solomon, who is David's best shot at a good guy, falls away as well. Just because you live a life of worship doesn't mean life gets uncomplicated. Doesn't mean that you still don't have to do certain things and love on certain people. It doesn't mean David was great at everything. He's a real guy. This is a real story. But as God begins to strengthen his kingdom, the power begins to shift. Meanwhile, on the other side, Abner is growing in power. Ishbosheth is merely a puppet king. He's not going to do anything. Abner's the big deal on the other side. And as Abner gets bigger and bigger in power, one day he makes a mistake. He takes it one step too far. Ishbosheth comes to him and says, Hey, did I get that? Did I hear that right? Did you sleep with dad's concubine? I don't know what you're talking about. I can't believe you'd accuse me of that. Blah, blah, blah. It's super defensive. All evidence points that he did. Why would he sleep with Saul's concubine? Because that's how you take over the throne. It was a political move. He was trying to tie into the family of Saul. Ishbosheth called him on it and said, You're out of line. Well, Abner is the power guy, doesn't want anyone telling him what to do, explodes in anger and says, Fine, I'm switching teams. I don't like you anymore. And God doesn't like you. And leaves. Goes down to David. Hey, David, I can turn this whole nation over to you. Let's make an agreement. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 12. Look at this. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Meaning, I got the control right now. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, the puppet king, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. You, Everybody remember that story? All right. 
Why does David want Michael back? He has nine already. Why does he need another one? Because this is not about Michael. This is about politics. The whole nation is following Saul's son, Ishbosheth, because he's Saul's son. But what if David marries Saul's daughter? Now we have a loyalty issue. They can shift their allegiance and still say they're behind Saul, but they can follow David. That's why he wants Michael. But listen to this poor woman's life. We're about to judge her in chapter 6. When we get to the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, he's dancing before the Lord. Everybody remember the story? And Michael despises him and says, you look like an idiot out there. And she gets really hard on him. And we all go, what a horrible woman. I need you to factor these things in. Look at the next line. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way. Then Abner said to him, go home. And he went home. I need you to understand these are real life people. This is how Michael's story goes. The Bible says at the beginning twice, and Michael was in love with David. She loved him as a young girl. She finally gets her dream guy. And then her dad tries to kill him. He takes off running, abandons her. And she is forced into a marriage to somebody else. By God's grace, this man is a good man and begins to love her for years. She finally has the stability that she needs and that she craves. And now David comes back and yanks her back out of it. And her husband, who loves her desperately, is crying after her. And all the men in power said, go home or we'll kill you. And he abandoned her and leaves. I wonder why Michael and David didn't have an awesome marriage. Are we all tracking on this? I know we all want to judge her and go, well, she should have been into the God stuff. I just need you to understand. This woman has had everything ripped out from under her. All in the name of God. However, no one ever asked her what she needed. It was all political. Yeah, is she bitter? You better believe she's bitter and she dies bitter. Let's pick up the story from here. Abner gathers the whole nation to David, comes down to David and says, I did it, buddy. Everybody's behind you. I even got Benjamin, the other southern tribe that's Saul's hometown, man. I got everybody behind you. I handed over on a silver platter. I got you, Michael, your wife back. I did everything I needed to do. David said, great. Awesome. Let's throw a huge feast. Everything's cool. Then Abner leaves. Joab comes back home from work. Hey, what's going on? Oh, nothing, man. We just had this big, huge party with Abner. You did what? The guy that killed my brother. Okay, no. No, that's not okay. David goes, come on, man. It's not about you. This is a bigger thing going on. No, I don't think you understand, Dave. This guy is a traitor at his heart. He's just messing with you. He's trying to ruin everything we got going here. And you know what? You're an idiot for even listening to him. I'm out of here. Joab bails out and sends his messengers and calls back Abner and goes, Hey, Abner, uh, we forgot to tell you something. I need you to come back real quick to the city. Come here real quick. I just got to talk to you. He calls him back to Hebron. Why is that important? Because Hebron's a city of refuge. Anybody know what a city of refuge is? 
A city of refuge was established in the Old Testament that if anyone wants to have revenge against you and they're trying to kill you, you can run to a city of refuge and no one is allowed to harm you. You are protected by the entire nation. It's the safest cities in all the country. Hey, buddy, come here real quick. I I forgot to tell you something. Takes out his dagger and knifes him right through and kills Abner right there. The reason why that's important is because Joab... His personal pain from his past blinded him to the plans of God. All he saw was red. All he saw was revenge. All he saw was the pain that he has experienced, and he could not see what God's trying to do. What he just did is disrupt the whole plan. Now the whole nation is looking at David going, your top guy killed our top guy, and we're supposed to trust you? He just asked us all to go over to your side. We were all ready to do that until you decide to assassinate our main guy. No, I'm not going to be partners with you. Forget it. Now David's in trouble. He turns around and looks at Joab. What do you think you're doing? Why would you do that? Man, why can't you get it out of your head? It's not about you. Let me ask you a question. How is it possible that every time David has an enemy, he's able to forgive and move on and Joab can't? It's a very simple answer because they're looking at two different stories. I'm going to suggest to you that if you do not understand this principle, you're going to have a very hard time with forgiveness. You will not be able to let the past be the past. It will always remain the present for you. And here's the principle. It's not your story. It's God's story. If it is your story, then it's a tragedy. But God doesn't write tragedies. He only writes a great, amazing outcome called heaven. We focus on our stories and we can't let our pain go because whoever hurt you is hurting the main character of the story. And we all know that we're not going to allow that to happen. You think that you have to hold them to the fire. You think that it's your job to hate them to hell. Problem is, they ultimately didn't do it to you. They ultimately did it against God, because it's his story. And if it's God's story, he's the one that's going to need to write him out of it, not you. David was able to forgive Saul as much as Saul tried to kill him and destroy his life and to make him miserable, because David knew it wasn't about David. You do have enemies in this world, but they're not other people. The world, the flesh, the devil, those are our enemies. That's who we hate. When horrible, horrible things happen in this world, we know who to blame. And it's not a human. The enemy is moving about seeking who he may devour. We must re-rack our mindset to understanding that we must hand off the pain of our lives and allow God to deal with it. Because God is writing his story and he is the great God of justice. David could let it go. Joab could not. That is the difference between a life of self and a life of worship. Let's close it out. It says, there's a big, huge funeral for Abner. David forces Joab to go out and be sad, even though Joab could care less. And David restores the whole nation's confidence by being very clear and actually cursing his friend Joab in public, saying, I had nothing to do with it.
This isn't me. I didn't kill Abner. That was wrong of Joab. He should have never done it. Abner had made a change. He was trying to help our team. Joab blew it. I am a good guy. The nation believed him. But now Ishbosheth's main power guy is gone. Not only did he abandon him, but now he's dead. And Ishbosheth begins to panic. And then look in chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. I need you to see this verse because it's so powerful. Chapter 4, verse 4. Everybody remember Jonathan? Who's that? That's David's best friend. He's dead now. He died with his dad on the battlefield. David promised him that he would honor his household. Most of them are wiped out. But look at this. Now, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that they were dead, and his nurse took him up and fled. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, he's 12 at this point in the story. He's been crippled since he was five. How do you think Mephibosheth feels about God? I don't know. If you have a handicap, how do you feel about God? You can't walk. You can't do what you want. Your body breaks down all the time. How do you feel? You think God abandoned you? You think God doesn't use you anymore? Because quite frankly, that's what all society told him. The only reason Mephibosheth is alive is because he's out of the running to lead because he's a cripple. All of society has said to a 12-year-old boy, you'll never amount to anything. You can't rule like your dad. You're in the line, but it's never going to happen. Everyone's going to pass you over. You're not good enough. I need you to hear this point very, very clearly. The only reason that Mephibosheth is alive and is able to be used for the kingdom of God and he is about to bring the greatest blessing to his family ever. The only reason that God utilizes Mephibosheth in his kingdom purposes is because he's crippled. It is his pain that makes God glory. It is his pain that allows him to be used. It is his handicap that highlights him out as being a great man. It's because of the difficulty and the pain that he experiences that God says, I want you. I know you felt abandoned by God. You are not. He's watching you and he's using you and he will not allow any handicap to hold you down. He knows what he's doing. Meanwhile, the puppet king Ishbosheth takes a nap one day, and he has two raiding captains that work underneath him. They come into his room and disrupt his nap and say, Oh, we're just getting a bit of wheat. And they stab him in the stomach and kill him in his bed and cut off his head. And they take it down to David and say, Look, we have your enemy's head. God has vindicated you. What do you think David did? Instantly killed him right there. I didn't ask you to do that. You trying to write my story for me? I don't think you guys get it. It's not my story. It's God's story. Why does everyone keep forgetting that? He's not my enemy. People are not my problem. There's God and there is Satan. And Satan is ruining everything, clearly. 
Obviously, there's all kinds of problem with evil. But stop telling me that everybody else is my enemy. They're not my enemy. I don't care what happens with Ishbosheth. I don't have to fight for my kingdom. That's God's problem. I don't have to defend my kingdom. That's God's problem. I don't have to fight my way to the top and hurt people to get there. Because that's God's problem. Stop making it mine. Wow, if we could only get that perspective. Do you understand the only reason that David's going to make it on the throne is not because David is awesome, it's because God is on his side? That's true for you. The blessings you have in your life are because you have a good and gracious God. I know it's not going the way you want it. But your God loves you. Let me close with this thought. Process has no time frame. And during all this chaos, David is living a life of worship because he understands the concept that you love God while it's not going your way. He understood the secret to contentment about making it a different story. And through all these bad things that happen, people getting slaughtered needlessly. Lives being ruined because of other people living for themselves. David maintains his integrity. Let me ask you this. In your heart, how many people have you slain? Because they stood in between you and what you wanted. Let's close in prayer and we have a final challenge before we get out of here on video. Let's close. Heavenly Father. We spend so much stress and so much time protecting what's ours. But God, if you want it gone, we can't hold on to it. And if you want it to stay, nobody can rip it away from us. It's your story, Lord. We're not supposed to get it. We're not supposed to have all the answers. We are a part player in your drama. Father, help us to let go. Help us to have faith, to believe that you are moving, that we are being utilized as your children, that you have not forgotten us or abandoned us, but it is the very pain, it is the very chaos that we see that is your hand moving in our lives. Increase our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.